The fruit bowl of New Zealand is looking rotten after Cyclone Gabrielle ripped through the region, tearing at fruit trees and vegetable crops. Devastated food growers in the Hawke's Bay region are pleading for government help as they struggle to know what to do next. Their crops are gone and so are their livelihoods. It's a sea of mud and claggy silt, scattered with the broken remnants of fencing, machinery, vines and rotting fruit. This morning at five o'clock we had a bit of a cry. Knowing that there's many people that ready here at 8 o'clock to help us. New Zealand's fruit bowl left in ruins by Cyclone Gabrielle. The damage has been of a very significant scale and while we can see the images of that on the TV news in the evenings, actually seeing it up front really brings home the reality of that. And it's going to hit everyone in the pocket. Vegetable prices have doubled since Cyclone Gabrielle hit New Zealand and decimated vast areas of crops. Kumara and leafy vegetables are among the veggies hardest hit by flooding and supermarkets and wholesalers say customers should get used to higher prices. The single broccoli head is $5.99. Retailers are also expecting potatoes and onion prices to go up significantly too. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen and today on The Detail... Hawke's Bay is the epicentre of so much of our food production. Just how much damage has been done, how will it impact future supply and what will it do to the price we pay for our fruit and veggies? Jerry Prendergast is the President of United Fresh and that's a group representing the fruit and vegetable industry in Aotearoa. He explains how crops get from the field to the supermarket shelves. From picking, it's about 48 hours in total by the time you pick, pack, take field temperature out in a cooler environment, uh, transport to a local market, and then it finds its way to a store. That might be a supermarket DC, it could be an independent wholesaler that actually then sells that on to a small retailer. And you see in vegetables, there's kind of that 24 to 48 hour turnaround period on a vegetable crop. When it comes to um, some stored product, so you're talking about apples, all of the apple crop is off in a certain window. That crop is then stored in um, controlled atmosphere environments and that fruit will come out absolutely perfect, provided it went in at the optimum quality and it was stored at the optimum quality, it's going to come out with a really good quality. Question is, will some of that heavy rain affect some of that crop? So that's the unknown. So you then have a kumara or an onion or a potato crop. Um, a lot of those are picked over a period um, of three or four months of the of the peak season. And remember, you've got a Pukakoi potato region. You've got a Awakuni potato region. You've got a Canterbury potato region and so on. Well, and the Waikato as well. So they will come off at different times of the year. And then that product is stored um, and may take um, you know a number of weeks for that to be dried, stored, and brought to market. If you think about your summer fruit, it's got to be off and consumed pretty quickly within a two, three-day period maximum. Uh, berry fruit, you've got that 48 hours. It's got to be off field temperature out and brought to market. And vegetables must be fresh. You know, you've got to keep that vegetable crop moving fresh. Your 48 hours is your sort of turnaround, um, natural turnaround period. Why is it called the Fruit Bowl of New Zealand? Wow, well, it's just, I mean, you know, Hawke's Bay is a fantastic growing area, you know, the Heraton Plains uh, used to be a swamp, funny enough. Bryden Nisbet is the president of the Hawke's Bay Fruit Growers Association. He has his own orchards in Pukatapu. Fantastic fertile soils, great weather, great climate, you know, um, cold winters and frost that help set your 
produce up on trees. They need the cold winters and the frosts and warm springs and nice warm weather in the summer. So apples, summer fruit, you know, your peaches, nectarines, cherries, etc., grow really well. Crops grow really well because of the fertile soil. So there's a huge cropping industry, uh, especially, you know, squash, onions, but then you've got buttercups, but then you've got all your, your beans and peas and maize and sweet corn. And a lot of that's grown around here too. 90% of New Zealand's sweet corn is grown here in Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti. 80% of the country's beans come from here. 100% of all button-up pumpkins bound for Wattie's soup. And 100% of all processed tomatoes come from Hawke's Bay. Let's go into um, the cyclone. Where were you when it happened? Describe to me what you remember. We've got... Three small orchards. Um, we have a house there that's tenanted, but we live uh, elsewhere. The wind was horrific. Once the wind started, it was just absolutely relentless. Torrential wind with bouts of thunder as well, which kind of just woke you up. You thought the roof had gone on the house. Uh, and then lots of rain, uh, but obviously a lot more rain up in the ranges because that's what's come down and, and flooded everything because the rivers have just got so high. They've wiped out bridges. Uh, stop banks, uh, breaches and stop banks, gone over stop banks. But, of course, when we woke up uh, Tuesday morning on the 14th, we didn't really know the damage. I rang up my tenant, and my question was going to be to her, um, well, how are you, and are the apples still on the trees, thinking the wind was going to would have blown all the apples off, and, and she was on the roof of the house. Uh, the water had started coming in about 6 in the morning. We're not far from the stop bank at Pukitap. Uh, she had three kids and they went up into the rafters and then broke through into the, out onto the roof because it was a tiled roof and was sitting on the roof when I rang her. So that was uh, that was her story, and she ended up sitting up there for seven hours. And it wasn't soon after that phone call that, you know, the phone lines went down and the power went down and things like that, so I couldn't contact her after that. But when I did finally contact her on the Thursday, she told me the story how she'd gone over onto another road and gone up high. And she was there for a couple of days because all the roads were blocked out to Pukitap. Cyclone Gabrielle left rural Pukitapu a wasteland. A tsunami of debris tossed kilometres from where it came from. When did you actually get to the orchard yourself and what did you see? We didn't get out there till Friday afternoon because the roads were closed. And we, you know, hey, we knew things weren't good, that things had been flooded. We were kind of preparing for the worst, but believing for the best. And, uh, you know, because you just don't, until you see something, you don't know. But, of course, we got out there and, we have a little orchard next to the next to a large kiwi fruit block, and that that banks right backs it right up to the stop bank. Well, that's pretty much flattened. These these a few areas of that are where the trees are still standing, but that orchard, uh, a lot of the trees are buried in the silt. My tractor pumps upside down somewhere. You can just see it sticking out. The little tin shed I had there was quite a big tin shed. That's nowhere to be seen. So that orchard was just a that's a write off. And then uh, we've got a block across the road. It's a five hectare block. The river went through there, probably at about a let's say if you average it about a metre high, it went through there and then receded. But what's left through that orchard is a massive amount of silt. And you're probably talking somewhere between 300 mil and half a metre in places of, of silt. It's just like sand. And that's in every square inch of that five hectares. And we went there the Friday, we went there the Saturday, we went there the Sunday, and we just didn't know what to do or we'd even start. We were due to harvest now. If it hadn't happened, we'd be picking probably today. But for the most part, the orchard was still standing. The infrastructure was still standing. The trees were up, although they'd been battered a bit, and there were bits of tin sheds and all sorts of objects throughout the block and bins through the orchard. And then, But the house was a mess, of course. The house was flooded. And, and then I have another orchard further out, 
that the tracks got wiped out. It's very, very wet. We'll lose some trees because of the water, but it's more water damage, no silt. So we can still harvest that block. But it's not good, but it hasn't got the silt and everything through the water that we're going to have to remove. So obviously you cannot harvest anything where the river's gone. The river line where it's gone through is very obvious. You can't miss it. So if by some miracle, because we're in there trying to scrape the silt away from the trees, because if I don't do anything, the trees will end up dying because the roots won't be able to breathe because the silt's all around the trunk and out, out where the roots are under the ground. So we're in there with diggers trying to remove, pull that silt away. So yeah, this, that's your own story there. What about the whole region? I mean, how kind of devastated were the fruit growers, the veggie growers of Hawke's Bay? In a weird way, the three blocks that I've got kind of represent the, the levels of destruction through the industry. These many blocks that the water went right to the top, which obviously it did over that little block I had where the infrastructure is down, it's flattened. It's gone. You can't do anything about it, and and we're not sure what we're going to do in the future with those blocks. Uh, so there's that degree, and then there's the degree I talked about with the silt, and then these guys with orchards that are still standing and these uh, small amount of silt or these a large amount of silt. Depends where they were. And then these blocks that didn't get the silt, but they got a lot of water. So blocks that are under, you know, the, the water's kind of half a metre high or... 600 high and it's just water so the next few days you know the few days after the cyclone they were busy with pumps trying to pump the water out of their blocks because trees sitting on the water aren't going to last too long either because they'll get root rot and phytophthora and different diseases around the roots you know vineyards are the same with the if they'll buy the river the silts come up and around the vines and knock some of the vines over and then of course a lot of crops have uh, just been wiped out i mean you know up near me the day before i was driving up our road to get to our road, and there was a whole paddock of onions, probably a 12-hectare block of onions that were all turned, drying out, ready to be um, harvested in the next probably the next week once they dry, where there's no onions left in that paddock, and those onions are for miles down the roads and hanging on fences and in apple trees. and So lots of crops, because they're ground crops, if they were near rivers or streams, were flooded. That food is no good now. You can't harvest anything that's gone underwater. Uh, that's a huge dent in the industry for food. A lot of these growers supplied to Waddies, McCain's. So a lot of that food's completely taken out of the out of the region now, out of the equation. How long does it actually take to grow these orchards and farms? How much work have you put in that's been lost? Well, huge amounts. I mean, we I started off in business 10 years ago, really, and I managed to lease an orchard and I, I cut the trees down. Just I grafted the trees. So I cut them down to their trunks and then grafted a, a variety onto them. Then it was a, a couple of years before you get, you got I got my first little harvest, and so they were full grown. Now they've full grown, full harvest after about seven years. You're into full production. So if I put it this way, if I was to lose my orchard that I'm trying to save now by removing the silt from the trunk, it's a five hectare block. If I was to lose it, then I would have to remove all the trees and silt anyway. Plough up the ground. Um, I may not even get trees for this year. That's the other thing. You've got to order your trees, so there may not even be enough trees. But let's say I. So I had to wait a year to plant. And if I planted in 2024, and then it would be 2027 before I even started picking any apples. There's not only the cost of getting rid of the block, but the whole establishment of a new orchard, and then the delay in getting an income for that orchard. So it's a huge, huge cost. And a lot of growers are facing that. They cannot plant again. There are a lot of these orchards uh, in some of the areas like Dartmoor Valley and Est Valley, This, uh, you know, the, the silt might be two metres high. Is it too risky to plant there again in those areas? Possibly. Yeah, you would think so. Depends what kind of infrastructure the government 
are going to going to work with to, to in those areas. They know where those areas are flooded, what type of infrastructure they want to put in there to prevent that happening again. Or some orchardists may just decide, I'm out of here. Um, I'm just going to walk away and walk away from business altogether. And we don't really want that. We don't want to lose industry experience and we don't want to lose families that these generational families here that have lost huge amounts of land we don't want to lose people out of the industry so that's where we're talking to government about a strategy moving forward how can we you know what can we do for the growers to retain them retain their orchards help them into the next phases and uh, and the government's listening but we're only at the very very beginning stages of that because chris hipkins came by didn't he I've just had the opportunity to uh, meet with many of the growers. I had the opportunity uh, during the course of the day to speak with many of them. And I want to acknowledge uh, just how tough they're doing it at the moment. What did you discuss with them? Yeah, so I was at that meeting. So he was good. He appears to be listening, and I think they are listening. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to come and hear the voices, not only of their stories, but more, what do you need from us now? What do you need from us in six months? What 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 do you think we could be doing? Obviously, the financial impacts uh, for growers is huge because most people have borrowed to get to this point. They've borrowed to prune their trees, thin their trees, spray their trees, whatever they've done to get to this point of harvest, they've borrowed relying on the harvest to then pay back the overdraft and get a bit of profit and then start the next season again, the spending again. And of course, now there's a big hole. So the bigger the orchards or the bigger the company is, the bigger the hole. And there's no income coming in to help fill that hole. So that was a pretty clear message. Jerry Prendergast has been in the fruit and veggie industry his whole life. How does this compare to other bad seasons? This has probably been the most significant, constant range of events that we've ever seen. And I'll use an example where uh, last year uh, we always believed there was always good opportunity having good growing regions. You know, you would have a southern growing region, a central New Zealand growing region, a Pukekohe growing region, and that was covering the basis. If one region had a little rain event or something particular happened or there was a hailstorm at a particular time, you normally were confident you had your bases covered. We saw twice last year every region hit within the same period, which was quite unusual. And this is really um, uh, no different to what's been uh, publicised. And we can expect extremes. We can expect longer dry periods, longer wet periods, heavier wet periods. And I think as long as we understand that, we can prepare for it and and understand that our flexibility and, and our agility in terms of the way we think about eating fresh fruit and produce and producing it needs to be taken into consideration. What were the significant events last year? You had three or four major rain events which affected three major growing regions at the same time, shortened the produce crop up. Uh, We then got uh, the summer period in the first couple of months that we've just experienced. Those three major events, really, whether it was the first Gisborne heavy downpours, whether it was our Auckland rain event, which affected the Pukekohe region, or whether it was our flooding event extreme events which have really been tough on the fruit and vegetable growing regions. So how much did Cyclone Gabriel affect all your members, especially in Hawke's Bay? Yeah, well for the apple industry um, and it's very well publicised just how tough that was for a lot of those growers in the Hawke's Bay. Probably putting it into perspective, if you think about New Zealand uh, as a major exporter of apples, about 65% of all of New Zealand's apples exported. About 10% of those in the past have been processed and a roughly 50 15% is what comes to the domestic market. 
So for Hawke's Bay, uh, the export side has and is going to be devastating for them. It's also very early at this point to actually clarify just exactly how bad it's hit. We know that some operations were completely wiped out. We know that there is still some operations that are picking apples today and bringing those to market and they're going into storage and, and, and making them available. And it's worth pointing out, with apples, most of that crop or all of that crop is off by the end of April. So it's all then into storage. It then comes out of storage and is brought to market or exported right through to December. So the real test for us in New Zealand and for our export markets is what fruit is going to be available later in the year. It's the Octobers, Novembers, Decembers. Right now, it's looking okay because there is fruit coming off. At the same token, there's some people that have been devastated and wiped out, and we've, our hearts go out to those people. Some of that summer fruit as well, I mean, it's kind of getting to the end of the season, but that might be affected too. Yep, so the summer fruit crop was all but off when that rain event, um, that flooding event hit. Uh, what we're worried about is um, is silt in some of those orchards that uh, were um, were knocked with the flooding. We're also worried about um, you know how wet are the feet of those trees at a time when they were due for the pruning. So we think that it's too soon to predict what's going to happen for next season. The good news was that that crop had finished from the consumers' perspective, that crop had finished, and the central Otago crop for summer fruit was in full swing. That doesn't take anything away for what happened to those growers who have had silt and river debris and all of the hassles that they've had to go through uh, with their own properties. Next season is going to be a test. Again, it is too soon to predict what will or should happen over the winter months to how that crop is going to come for next summer. Okay. well, any other shortages that we can think of? What about vegetables like kumara, with the vast majority of its stock coming from Northland's Kaipara district, which experienced severe flooding in the cyclone? Yeah, it's got to be a great example. Um, the kumara crop really has been devastated and probably the, the least spoken about. Kumara growers at the moment, uh, one of the priorities is making sure, first and foremost, that there is enough kumara seed for next season. So that crop, uh, and you need about, um, uh, if I've got this number right, I think it's a, um, I think it's a thousand ton of kumara is required to go into next season. That's the first priority at the moment. And what we do need to do is make sure that that crop is available ongoing. Uh, we're going to see some very, very short supply, and potentially we might not see 12 months supply. It's a little early to say, but I know that uh, that ground was saturated for the Coomera growers. So we might not see Coomera in the supermarkets. Do you think we'll get to that? At some point, that has the potential. Oh, that'll be sad. However, there is alternatives. A pumpkin is a great alternative. And pumpkin is reasonably priced, reasonably unaffected, reasonably quick-growing crop. There's already talk of putting a bit more kumara in the ground for later on in the winter and going into spring. So there's those opportunities that come along. We, growers and the industry is quite agile and can respond reasonably quickly. Not, not immediately because you've still got a growing situation. And it comes back to um, all of us that just are absolute kumara fans may not be eating a lot of kumara this year.
the price that we see on the supermarket shelf, how do we actually get to that price? Who makes that decision? Yeah, so demand and supply um, dictates the price of fruit and vegetables. If there was a bit of extra demand or, you know, t- too much demand and the supply, why would the prices rise in, in that regard? If there was too much demand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And less supply. Less yeah, supply? Yeah, yeah. Well, it would simply be that the grower would be looking at two or three or four or five options where he could sell or she could sell his pro- her, their product. So they would be knowing, would they be getting more money by putting them into the independent market? Could they sell them straight to the supermarket? Where am I going to get my best price? So the grower's thinking about that all the time. Um, and that's then they're aware of where those opportunities are. If they can get a little bit more money over here, they may discuss saying, look, I can get more money here. Uh, I need a little bit more money from you if you're prepared to pay more money. And that is what the demand and supply principles work for. Having a consistency like we've experienced perhaps in the past years where you see a pretty stable price on a particular commodity like a broccoli head, you know, it'll sit at a certain price right throughout the year, you'll see spikes. There'll be a time when you'll go, well, maybe I need to leave that on the shelf and not buy it. I've got to think of an alternative. And that's the message we really want to get out. Be really flexible with your purchasing. You'll then see time when we're going into the next uh, three or four days um, and into next week where broccoli is actually really plentiful because it's come on. We've had some good warm weather. The crops produced well. um, But we might need to see some gaps where there was some planting gaps because they had 10 or 14 or three weeks of weather where they weren't able to plant. So that consistency isn't there. And that's where we've got to be flexible in our thinking and our purchasing. If our heart's set on a head of broccoli, we might need to diversify and, you know, should we be doing courgettes that week? You know, could we be doing a head of cabbage made into a coleslaw that we wouldn't normally buy? So what's next? It comes back to the weather gods now. You know, we've got a window for our winter crop uh, where that planting has got to take place. We've got to have some good uh, long summerish autumn days to produce the crop. Uh, The last thing we need now is another weather event and uh, we just need some stability. We've had a pretty rocky period. Uh, Some stability is going to bring some good crops for us going into that winter period. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poek. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Jerry Prendergast and Bryden Nisbet. Ka kite anu. <laughs>